This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I suppose the other speakers have said it's hard to see you. It really is with this light right here. Um, it's great to be here, and um, I'll tell you about the work in our lab that's been going on over the last couple of decades. And um, we're focused on bioinorganic chemistry or metallobiochemistry. And this is the study of proteins that have metal ions or enzymes that have metal ions in them that are needed for catalysis or for structure. But it's also the study of how bacteria or microbes get the metals that they need to grow and also how other cells maintain their metal ion homeostasis. So we all do... um, bioinorganic chemistry with every breath that we take. Um, And I'll illustrate that in a second. But here, you know, for a typical 70 kilogram um, human person, um, let's see if I get this right. Oops. Um, There's about 5 grams of iron, 1.8 grams of zinc, and about 0.25 grams of copper relative to the bulk elements um, in a person. And um, in order to see, um, to illustrate this, take a huge breath. And the oxygen that you've just breathed in is coordinating and binding to the iron and hemoglobin. Don't exhale yet. Um, And because what's happening is that oxygen is, is being transported to your brain and to muscles. And that's where respiration is going on. You need the enzyme cytochrome oxidase. And cytochrome oxidase has many copper atoms as well as iron heme centers that then um, reduce the dioxygen down to water and they're oxidizing glucose back to CO2. So if you ran this reaction backwards, that's photosynthesis that you may be aware of also. But you still can't exhale because you need another metalloenzyme. You need the zinc carbonic anhydrase in order to maintain the equilibrium, the equilibration between CO2 and bicarbonate. And so when you shake a soda can and it fizzes and bubbles and you think that's an that's CO2 being released and building up pressure. You think that equilibration is fast. It's not fast enough for us. And that's why we need an enzyme then that, that carries that out. Now, we have a lot of iron, zinc, um, and copper. There's a lot in, you know, on terrestrial or, um, environments. There's a lot of these metal ions also. Um, but the ocean, the transition metal composition is completely different. So the next time you go swimming, think about the fact that the most abundant metal ion in the ocean is molybdenum. Vanadium is the second most abundant metal ion. And by contrast, iron is really, really dilute, not like with us. You know the ocean is salty, so it's half molar in chloride, millimolar in bromide, micromolar in iodide. And also, it's about micromolar and hydrogen peroxide during daylight hours, and this is as a result of photochemical events. So organisms evolve against the chemical constraints of their environment. So what kinds of new metalloenzymes might be present in marine organisms? And that was the question that I asked when I was starting off as an assistant professor. So it's not surprising that a vanadium bromoperoxidase enzyme would be found in um, marine organisms. It's found in every class of marine seaweeds and in many marine bacteria. So this enzyme uses vanadium for catalysis, and I'll show you how in a minute. And it's using bromide and peroxide to 
um, halogenate organic compounds, that's the RH. Um, uh, um, and so some, we've looked at um, the biosynthesis of many brominated, halogenated natural products in marine seaweeds. But in terms of sheer tonnage of brominated or, or uh, chlorinated compounds produced, it's the, it's the volatile halogenated hydrocarbons that are produced in huge amounts by blooms of temperate marine algae. And they correlate with the decrease of the Arctic ozone layer um, during these blooms. Not the Antarctic ozone layer, because the residence time isn't long enough in the atmosphere, but um, in terms of the Arctic it is. Okay, so this is a really simple enzyme. Um, you could imagine that we have, the, there's the vanadium, it's sitting at the a bottom of a deep valley, um, and it's just vanadate coordinated to the protein by one um, side chain amino acid residue, histidine. Um, and um, the way this enzyme functions then is that the peroxide has to attach to the vanadium. Um, it's bound side on, and in the, peroxo, in the bound peroxo state, it tunes up the potential so it can oxidize bromide, and it gives us hypobromide. So this is the bromine analog of hypochlorite. So some of these organisms are actually making bleach also. Um, during the turnover of this enzyme. And that's exactly what can do electrophilic halogenation reactions of organic substrates. Um, okay, so why does an organism want to make these halogenated um, natural products? What good is it for them? Um, and um, in one sense, um, many, many of these compounds were known to have chemical defense functions for uh, for these organisms. So um, certain organisms, uh, like a fish trying to eat a particular alga, may not like um, the taste of what some of these brominated compounds are. So they're ichthyotoxic compounds. Um, but also, if you think about any time you place a surface in water, it becomes biofouled. It's slimy. And that's the result of microorganisms growing on the surface and creating the slime. So how does how do seaweed keep all these microorganisms from growing on it, other and and, and fouling their surface? Because they must maintain a, a pristine surface to do the chemistry to um, uh, to, to grow. So um, if you think about it, in one mill of seaweed seawater, a tiny amount of seawater, there are ten to seventh viruses. There are one million bacterial cells and a thousand fungal cells. That's a lot of microorganisms to colonize surfaces that are um, in, in the ocean. Um, and so bacteria then, um, when they're trying to colonize a surface and make a biofilm, they can't do it one bacterial cell at a time. They have to know that there's a cohort of themselves that are out there, and this is called quorum sensing. How would you know that your neighbor is next to you? You can see that, but a bacterium isn't working that way. And so instead, these bacteria shoot out small molecules called homoserine lactones as one type of quorum-sensing molecule. Um, and if it then embeds in the receptor on the surface of another bacterium, the bacterium goes, aha, um, my cohort is there. Let's do something together. Let's make a, bac let's make a biofilm. So a very interesting area of research, actually, is how do you disrupt and interrupt quorum sensing? 
um, so that a bacterial um, cohort could be growing but not know that um, their um, offspring or brothers and sisters are um, growing next to them. And uh, that's what we were interested in, particularly in um, whether or not some of these brominated compounds are disrupting quorum sensing. So it had been known that um, this is a seaweed delicia pulchra from Antarctica, although it actually is found in Australia and New Zealand also, and it makes these small molecules, the brominated furanones. And they actually um, interact with the same receptors on the surface of, of, of um, bacteria that the homoserian lactones. And they, they are known to disrupt quorum sensing. But what's the role of this vanadium enzyme in making these compounds? And how else could this vanadium enzyme be helping um, the seaweed um, to um, limit biofouling of its surface? So we need to know where this enzyme is. So if you just take a piece of this alga and put it in a pool of phenol red. So some of you may have carried out um, titration experiments with an indicator dye phenol red. It appears yellowish at around pH 6 or 7. And then if we add to this whole piece of alga and the phenol red, hydrogen peroxide and bromide, we can see the blue color developing in one minute and certainly by three minutes. And that's the bromination of the compound that produces this indicator dye um, bromophenol um, blue. So we know that, this, that the, on the surface, the, um, the enzyme um, is present um, and active. So that means the question is, what about the molecules that the bacteria is sending out could, could um, the alga or the enzyme in the alga brominate um, these, um, uh, this, uh, these homoserian lactones, and particularly the three oxo version, because at the, carbon, the two carbon position, that's a perfect site for electrophilic halogenation? And the answer is yes, and it brominates either once or twice, and we can certainly find these compounds by mass and isolate them. And it turns out they also disrupt quorum sensing in the bacteria. So you know, I have to tell you about what this quorum sensing experiment is. This is an engineered strain of a bacterium called Agrobacterium tumefaciens, and it's engineered to release an enzyme called beta-galactosidase that acts on a dye called XGAL uh, under quorum sensing conditions. And this um, XGAL then gets hydrolyzed by this enzyme to form a blue-green compound that's a lot like indigo, the dye that makes blue genes blue. And in the presence of the brominated compound, we can see the bacterium is growing, but it's not turned the blue um, color, um, the release of this dye from, from XGAL. So um, then we turn to, well, how might the, the um, enzyme be involved in the biosynthesis of these brominated, um, terpene, uh, brominated furanones? And we don't know what the original, you know, the substrate is to make these. But we said, what could be the simplest substrate that might give us a brominated furanone? And that was for pentaenoic acid. We can brominate here, and it can cyclize, and it makes this very simple bromofuranone with just one bromine atom. Um, and that also disrupts quorum sensing. We can see here under quorum sensing conditions, we see the blue-green um, dye being released, whereas under, in the presence of the bromofuranone, the bacterium's growing, but it doesn't know um, that it's under a quorum of itself and it's not releasing the enzyme. So 
one way that algae then um, uh, protect themselves is they're able to disrupt um, quorum sensing in microbes trying to colonize on their surface. And I've shown you one example with this vanadium enzyme that both makes a compound that is, um, prevents the biofouling, but also can attack the molecules, certain molecules that bacteria produce. Okay. So that's the story of an abundant um, transition metal that's in the ocean. What about um, the story of iron in the ocean? All bacteria have to have iron to grow, with the possible exception of a couple of species. Um, and so this is a false color image of iron, an average over 10 to 12 years of iron concentrations in the ocean. And the deep blue colors are the very lowest levels of iron, roughly picomolar um, iron. But bacteria typically need about micromolar, 10 to the minus 6 to 10 to the minus 7th molar iron to grow. Um, so um, how do bacteria get iron? Well, if they're growing in a host like us, they can often get the iron out of hemes or out of the iron transport proteins, transferrin or, or lactoferrin. But if they're growing out in the environment where there's not much iron, they synthesize small molecules called siderophores, Greek for iron liking. And um, there are these groups called catechols that bind quite tightly to fold up and bind around the iron in an octahedral fashion. And then they're recognized by specific receptor and brought back in. So we wanted to know what are the siderophores of marine bacteria. And when we started this, there weren't really any that were known. And so, um, oh, here's a map then of where we got water from or where we collected it ourselves. And you can see it's regions of low iron, not the absolute lowest levels of iron down in the southern oceans, although we have looked at some down here. Um, and what we do is we take that water and we streak it on a, a petri dish which has a blue iron dye. And when iron is removed from the dye, it turns an orange-pink color. So these brown spots are the colonies of bacteria growing, and those that have a halo around them have pulled iron out of this dye. And so that's, these are good candidates to say, we're going to pick these up, we're going to grow them up, we're going to find out what the compounds are and what, what the siderophores are. So that's what we do. We um, grow them up in four-liter flasks, and then we sample over time, and we add a little bit of our growth medium to the, a liquid um, blue iron dye, the blue cast solution, and when it turns pink, we know we have our compound that's present in solution, then we harvest and run a lot of columns and run a lot of HPLC, and we isolate the compounds. And the slide I'm about to put up next was years of work, okay? But it feels funny to put it up and just not attribute this to all the students whose who's really hard work went into determining these structures. So it's not simple, like the one I showed you with enterobactin. So these are peptides. They have one of a series of fatty acids. Well, that sounds pretty good, because maybe the fatty acid can hang, anchor in the membrane, and the head group can hang out to get the iron, and then the bacterium doesn't have to worry about diffusing away um, in the ocean. Um, and what's been really quite interesting is that a group at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution now has isolated some of the molecules that we've found in growth directly from the ocean. That's a hard experiment to do because they're present at such small concentrations, but they look at mass and the fractionation pattern of the mass. Okay, so um, one class then of, of the compounds we were finding were these suites of, of fatty acid-tailed siderophores. But another class were photoreactive when they were bound to iron. And that's this group circled in blue. It's an alpha-hydroxy 
carboxylic acid. And when that binds to iron, I looked at this and thought, oh, this is a lot like molecules that, that um, photochemists use to count photons. I bet this is going to be photoreactive um, if we shine light on it. And sure enough, so here's this band in the ultraviolet. Here's the UV visible spectrum of this iron siderophore. We put it out in sunlight or we shine specific wavelengths of light, UV light, and we get the red spectrum. And what's happened to the molecules, we lost that amino acid and we lost all the fatty acids from there, and now we've produced another compound. So this is photoreactivity of these iron siderophore compounds. And a postdoc in my group at the time, Catherine Barbeau, who's now a faculty member at UC San Diego, um, showed um, when she was in my lab that actually the process of this photochemistry makes the iron more available to m other microorganisms at large in the ocean. So there seems to be some synergistic uh, relationship there. Okay, so instead then of um, just getting water and plating it and not knowing what you get, we've now appro approached things in a much more targeted way through genome mining. So this has been truly fascinating. There are, there are just like thousands and thousands of microbial genomes that have been fully sequenced now. And we can go in and look for what kind of siderophore might we want to study? What, what might be interesting? And so one that was interesting to us is produced by um, uh, Vibrio harvii. Vibrio harvii is the organism that many people use to study quorum sensing because its readout for quorum sensing is bioluminescence. So when it gets to a su sufficient cell density, it glows, this beautiful blue color. Um, and it should have, it has the, you know, what looked like everything to make enterobactin, but it didn't make enterobactin. Instead, it had a gene um, that would encode an enzyme that put a fatty acid tail on it, like our other siderophores, and it makes these anti-enterobactin siderophores. So this core, what's called this serine macrolactone core, is really um, quite remarkable in siderophores. And so we wanted really very much to... Um, uh, to, to target other types of siderophores that were based on this core. And so we found a series that inserted an amino acid between the catechol, so this is the group again that binds the iron, and um, the serine macrolactone core, and these are what are called the cationic amine siderophores. So I didn't put a plus charge there, there should be another proton and a plus charge there. Um, and that would be um, the amino acid lysine, but not the typical L-lysine that we would have in, in our systems, but D, the opposite enantiomer, D-arginine, L-ornithine. And I want you to hold this thought. There, there's catechols next to amines in these siderophores. And we're going to turn now to the third and last story, which is what other kinds of molecules um, in marine organisms have this catechol and cation right next to each other, and how um, do these organisms use this? So that's mussels. A mussel sits down on a rock in the ocean against tremendous buffeting of wave action and has to stick there. And it does this by putting out these bissel threads all around to hold it in place. So when the mussel is going to make a bissel thread, it puts its foot out and it's sampling the surface. It lays down a plaque and the plaque has a striated layers of different proteins that are there that, that have different properties. So my research group does not work on the muscle foot proteins, but Herb Waits group does, uh, who's in biology here. 
And um, what he has shown is that these muscle MFP, original name, muscle foot protein, um, is, um, are the MFP5 and um, 3 um, are the ones that are interact then with the rock. And these are often aluminosilicate rocks, so a lot like mica. So in the lab, we can look at adhesion to mica because we can buy controlled samples of mica. Um, and um, there's up to 30 mole percent of tyrosine as an amino acid, and that tyrosine gets hydroxylated to form dopa. So I'll show you that in a second. And um, the lysine and the tyrosine are often right next to each other. And so here we go. This is what dopa is. It's a catechol like we saw in the microbial siderophores. It's a slightly different kind of catechol. It's what we call a 3-4. So one, two, three, and four carbons are hydroxylated as opposed to the two and three carbons. And it's next to um, this lysine. So it had been known for a long time that um, uh, the catechol was essential for um, the adhesion um, of these muscle foot proteins to rocks. But it wasn't really understood how this cationic amine was important. And it's hard to, um, to make a mutation in a protein and mutate out all of, the all of the lysines and expect to see the same type of protein again. Um, but in a small molecule, we could investigate this. And so now we're coming back to the siderophores. So we wanted to know what is the force of adhesion of these siderophore kinds of compounds. Um, and we worked with a group in chemical engineering um, run, uh, it was Jacob Israeli's, uh, Bailey's group. And he developed this surface forces apparatus to work in water. And so if you take two smooth um, cylinders of mica and you orient them perpendicular to each other, they contact at a point. And, um, if we take coat one surface or even coat both surfaces with a compound of interest and we, um, they're pretty far apart and we begin to bring them in close together in the open circles, at the point that a compound on one um, cylinder feels an attractive force to the mica on the other cylinder, there's a jump in. And we can continue to compress to a certain force and we can let it incubate or wait for a period of time and then pull apart. And the point that um, the applied force uh, you know, is um, higher than the adhesive force, then we see a pop-off of, of the molecule. So this is the adhesive of the force of adhesion. And that's what we're interested in. What is the force of adhesion? OK, so, um, and so you can see then here's our molecule, cyclic trichryzobacter in the siderophore. Here's the 2,3-dihydroxycatechol versus the 3,4-dihydroxycatechol of dopa. And they each have lysine. So Herb Waite and Jacob Israelis-Feely had done a lot of work on muscle foot proteins. We had a benchmark of what was good adhesion. And if we look at our molecule here, um, with, um, uh, we can, and we, this is in the surface forces apparatus, we bring it together and we can either wait for 2 or 10 or 30 minutes. The force of adhesion is good. It's around 40 millinewtons per meter compared to the proteins which are up around you know, 60 or 70. Um, but the weak link is this ester. So for those of you in chemistry labs, you'll know that the ester link can hydrolyze. And if we hydrolyze this whole thing, then we don't have a molecule that could bridge the two mica cylinders together. 
So a student of mine said, let's just synthesize these compounds and we'll put in a tren and a mean core. We'll still keep the lysine and we'll keep the, the catechol. And we can make all per permutations of this molecule that we want. And so um, when, um, when we ran this um, molecule in the SFA, we got a force of adhesion that was 90 millinewtons per meter. So that's much even better than the, than the muscle foot proteins. And there's a lot of information on this slide. So I have to tell you, mica is anionic, and it, in water or in salt water, um, it develops a hydration layer, so hydrated potassium ions or cations on the surface. And um, we can get a measure of that thickness when we look in the open circles of just buffer and we compress it, and we get a, a, what's called a hard wall thickness of about 14 angstroms. And you pull apart, and of course the buffer's not sticky, so there's no adhesion, so we see no force of adhesion. But, but in our molecule, we can see that it gets in beneath this hydration layer, and the hard wall thickness is around 8 or 9 angstroms. And, um, and so it's been able to penetrate beneath this in order to stick to the surface. So this is a perfect example, then, if we make permutations there, can we tease out what's the relative importance of the catechol versus the amine? So Greg Mayer and my group said, okay, um, here's the original molecule we started with, with lysine and the catechol. Let's just shorten that. Um, so we'll, we'll shorten it by two um, uh, methylene groups. Or let's keep the lysine but not have the catechol so we have a phenyl group or a benzyl group. Or let's take the, cat, the, the amine group away totally, or we could acetylate it, and therefore it can't be positively charged. So when we have the molecule with catechol and um, amine, then um, we, there's a good force of adhesion and our smallest hard wall thickness. If we just have the amine, there is some adhesion, not as much, but there's still a narrow hard wall thickness. And if we have catechol but no cationic amine, um, it's no different than buffer. It can't get beneath that hydration layer to stick, and the, and the hard wall thickness is thick, just like buffer. And so our model, whoops, our model is that the amine is important for priming the surface. It's sweeping these hydrated cations away, preparing the surface for the catechol to attach. So you know that a Band-Aid doesn't work in water, and there's a huge, huge need to develop wet adhesive compounds, both for medical applications, but also other kinds of applications also. And so this is a huge project um, in many different labs at UCSB, as well as around the world. So um, what I've told you about are two stories of two different metals in the ocean. One, the abundance of vanadium, we see a lot of vanadium um, in, the, in this vanadium bromine peroxidase enzyme, and it's essential for these organisms to survive and thrive, to keep organisms um, from colonizing the surface of, of, of seaweeds. And I showed you this un unusual suites of these um, amphiphilic sidiophores that also happen to be photoreactive if they have the right kind of group there, um, produced by marine, oceanic marine bacteria. And then how these kinds of sidiophores were really useful in teasing out how the muscle um, foot proteins are essential for, um, um, and the components in these muscle foot proteins that are essential for um, binding to um, the surface of mica or other rocks, aluminosilicate rocks in the ocean. 
And finally, I really have to, to, to thank um, my students. This is um, a photo, a recent photo of my, my current research group. And then all of the students that came before them that really uh, made these amazing discoveries that was essential for my group to continue working, current group to continue working. So on the vanadium enzymes, on the sidiorophores, um, on uh, the wet adhesion. And this has been a fabulous um, collaboration with Professor Jacob Ishraelishvili, who recently died, and uh, Professor Herb White. So I'd like to thank you also. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.